0: Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When
1: are we going to start it?
0: Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show & Tell. (music) Hello and welcome to TV Show & Tell, The show that likes to burn the midnight oil, talking all things media. But maybe that's just because we can't afford the electric bill. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London.
1: And I'm Justin Scroggie, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor.
0: And in today's show, we've got a wonderful interview with one of the UK's top exec producers, Luke Shack. It's a very honest and entertaining chat about the trials and tribulations of leading an entertainment production from idea to delivery. Our main topics of conversation today include the differences between TV and internet productions and discussion of what measures producers can take to save a failing reality show. Also, we're giving our fake and format feature a little bit of a rest, so stay tuned to the end of the show to see what our new feature is. But first, it's the news. (music) And this is the start of a new season of TV Show and Tell. But obviously, you've been listening to Justin's report while he was out sunning himself in Cannes with uh, the high and mighty of the TV industry. Is there anything else you want to report back
1: from there? Well, funny you should say that, David. Yeah, there was one show that I I forgot to mention in my report, which is called Love is a Highway, which is a new dating show from Quebec. The French name is Coeur du, get this right, Coeur du Trucker. (laughs) seven years of
0: French lessons are paying (laughs)
1: off. I don't know how to say trucker in French. (laughs) Uh, When the French, trucker, yeah. Coeur du Trucker, I suppose it must be. (laughs) Love is a Highway is a pun on on a popular Canadian song called Life is a Highway, which is used in countless commercials and coeur du trucker is a pun on coeur de rocker i suppose you say a rocker rocker which is a popular french song anyway mm. point of the show is it's basically farmer wants a wife with trucks uh, so <laughs> it's quite clever so just as back in the day farmer wants a wife identified the fact that the The business of being a farmer meant it was quite difficult to meet people and to form relationships and get married and have kids and whatever. This show is about people who drive trucks, lorry drivers, effectively, who spend their day in the cab on long hauls, are away from home for a long time, and mostly mixed with other truckers. So they turned that into a dating reality show where they've got four truckers. So what they did was they put out an advert to, to get people to take part, and they put the profiles of seven truckers online and asked people to write to them, basically saying, oh, you know, like they would, you know, and... <laughs> well, 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 like you would the, a serial killer in jail, I'd say. Exactly, exactly that, <laughs> yes. But sort of say, oh, you seem like a nice person. These, these, were, these were men and women. Right, and, okay. and then they counted up the level of interest And the four truckers that got the most interest came onto the show. I see. So there's no elimination process in the show. It follows these four truckers, cameras in their cabs as they crisscross the countryside. And basically at different stops, they meet various people, women or men, who have signed up to uh, see if there could be possible dates for the truckers. Some of them then join them in the cab and they go on to another stop or another couple of stops and whatever. And it's all very, you know, sweet and lighthearted and funny. And, you know, it's, a, it's also a glimpse into another world. People really got behind it in Quebec. It was commissioned for a second series almost immediately the first episode went out. It has just been picked up by banerjee oh. which is the, the biggest distribution conglomerate now. So they've picked it up and are shopping it around the world. That's one of those formats where,
0: Getting the tone right is extremely important, because on the face of it, like random truckers picking up women on the tide on the highway that they've never met before it could sound like a very
1: weird format at first, but yeah, I suppose it could, but I think because of the the process by which everyone's chosen to take part, which is very kind of explicit in the show and you know I think that kind of um undercurrent is less true in big countries like canada and the us and whatever where you know trucking is part of life and we've seen these truckers you know as heroes in the kind of a long-running reality series like ice ice road truckers and things mm. like that so the, i don't think it really has that but anyway the tone is very sweet and you end up really kind of gunning for these people to uh, to um, find a match
0: well good news justin because finally my seven-year-old son has got some use <laughs> because he's going to be able to cook dinner for me, finally. Uh-huh. Um, however, unfortunately, it will only be in virtual lands, because it will be in Minecraft, because the format Come Dine With Me is coming to the Minecraft metaverse. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, yes, you, you get together in a little lobby with your friends. You go to their different houses, and they've even established... Uh, the process of you getting into a taxi and, and voting for each other as well. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, a little... Quite strange These I find these things like Roblox and Minecraft, because you can play an awful lot in them and not spend any money whatsoever. And yeah. In fact, the only time my my son's actually spent any money in Minecraft is when he's secretly gone behind my back and bought Roblox without me knowing it. And I (laughs) suspect that's probably about 90% of their (laughs) incomes.
1: It probably Um, isn't. We're talking about the age group, though. So if you've got a Venn diagram, okay, so in, in one circle, you've got regular viewers have come down with me. And then the other circle, you've got Minecrafters. How many people are in both circles?
0: But yeah, my son would have no knowledge whatsoever of the Channel 4 format at all, no.
1: Mm. I mean, you know, I did some digging to discover, you know how, how numbers are very skewed in America. But according to the research from uh, PC Magazine, I think, the average age of a Minecrafter in the US is 24. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I just uh, can't quite get my head around because, I mean, at least half of them must be sort of between 3 and 12. But yeah, that that was my only question of it. I mean, obviously, they're looking to, you know, engage an entirely new audience, younger audience with the concept and all the rest of it. But there's got to be some brand recognition in the first place, surely, in order for those people to engage with it. So I wanted to mention a show which has recently launched on Amazon freebie or used to be freebie it became Amazon freebie um, which is called jury duty now as you know I love these kind of pranky shows this is billed as a mockumentary so ostensibly it's following a guy called Ronald Gladden young guy who gets called up for jury duty and he goes and he joins the jury for selection, he gets selected, and he becomes part of a jury for a civil case. And the civil case is between the owner and an employer of a company called Cinnamon and Sparrow. And the case is all about a batch of unusable t shirts. Okay, so far so relatively boring. However, the only person in this entire thing that is not an actor is James is Gladden. So he is completely Mm -hmm. unaware that everybody involved with it is acting. Right. So he's basically in the middle of a 17-day prank as this case unfolds in court. And it is very, very funny. And things basically, obviously, lots of strange things happen in the course of it. One very clever thing is that they brought in the actor James Marsden, who's, you know... (laughs) pretty much an A-list actor who's playing himself so he's been yeah. called up for jury duty too and is an absolute asshole <laughs> throughout <laughs> it so he kind of parodies you know one point you know he tries to get himself recused because he says that as he's as he has such a public figure he'd influence the uh, the, the trial and the judge basically says he's never heard of him and <laughs> everybody, everybody in the room agrees that none of them none of them have ever heard of him so so, uh, this poor guy and he's the sweetest bloke i mean they set out to find a really nice sweet guy and they try very hard and i think quite successfully to make it a joke with him rather than a joke on him completely so all sorts of things happen so there's a jury there's a jury member called Tim, for example, who just keeps getting injured <laughs> and is eventually has to be taken off the jury and replaced because he has a fall and inj- injures himself too much to carry on. There's a couple of jurors who are, you know, basically getting the hots for each other and manage to make it so that he kind of ends up being the go between between them, um, mm. <laughs> even though, which is all through whispers and things, you know, while the case is going on. Um, there's another juror who keeps falling asleep. Um, So she asks him if, because they sit next to each other, whether he would wake her up whenever she falls asleep, because she's kind of embarrassed about it. So it is just the weirdest, strangest thing. At one point, they go to visit the crime scene. I mean, yeah, it's a civil case. The crime scene is just basically an office with a cupboard. And then these T-shirts. So the T-shirts... Basically, what I can get my head around this. So the t shirts were made by the company for a social media campaign, and the t shirts have got J O R F on them, Jorf. Mm. And the reason they're unusable is because it turns out that this is, which is not true by the way, but according to the case, (laughs) that this is a code word between white supremacists. (laughs) Right. So one day, one of the jurors just turns out wearing one of these T-shirts, you know, which, of course, is entirely inappropriate for him to be wearing this unusable merchandise. And he's got it because he nicked it from the crime scene when they visited it. And so it goes on. So they they just play this thing out, and it's partly scripted, partly improvised. And it includes, you know, all the kind of scenes in the jury room. They go out for meals together as a jury. They were very clever that if things got too silly... And they started to worry that he might kind of twig. They'd have just a really boring day. Right. And they just have, you know, the defense or the prosecution just droning on the whole day just to kind of get him back in the zone. Um, mm. So it is an absolute delight. And it's, if you've got Amazon, or if you've got freebie, go and have a look. I just think it's, it's delicious.
0: Today's special guest is Luke Shack, who's been a series and exec producer for a wide range of comedy panel games, quizzes, and other formatted entertainment, including Sky Sports Quiz, A League of Their Own, Celeb Ability for ITV2, Al Murray's Great British Pub Quiz for Quest, and Comedians Giving Lectures for Dave. Let's hear from him now. So welcome to the show, Luke.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's just start at the beginning. Did you always want to work in TV? No, I, uh, I was a big film fan. So my original plan was to try and conquer the film world. I did that by working for a management consultancy that specialised in the film industry in the UK. And then I made a sort of sideways move into development and production. And over the course of a year, realised that the wheels of the film industry turn very slowly. You might be sitting in a meeting talking about the next George Clooney, Julia Roberts movie. And 11 months later, you're talking about a Hollyoaks actor and actress, low-budget thing that may or may not happen and maybe on Sky Movies at three in the morning in three years' time. So I thought, I want some faster turnaround action. And so I thought, well, TV, there's, you know, much quicker turnaround time. And I saw an ad in the back of The Guardian for question writers for The Weakest Link. I love quizzes, I love quiz questions, and I applied, I got knocked back, and then about six weeks later, they came back to me saying, someone's left, there's a vacancy, would you still be interested? And I was, so I went into the BBC, joined The Weakest Link, which is quite a big sort of battery farm of question writing, big team, and I loved it. I loved writing quiz questions, I loved the show, and then even better, very quickly, when we finally sort of hit the studio after a long period of question writing and development, they always wanted two people from the team to sort of sit and write Anne Robinson's put downs, and that was that was my real calling card. <laughs> she'd done a lot of her own, but she just wanted a bit of help because she was she'd done a thousand episodes or something by the time.
0: Making money out, out of insulting people and making jokes, so like, can make a career out of this.
2: I mean, that is <laughs> basically it. It's a very Nice arena to be at Smart You're sitting behind a curtain, off camera, and you've got the Queen of Mean putting your evil words out there. <laughs> and there's no, there's no recourse. Can you remember any of your uh, particularly biting put downs? The short answer is no. <laughs> I did, I did about, I can't remember three and a half series, and we recorded X hundred episodes, nine contestants per episode. So you know, we're talking possibly a thousand potential put downs. And she liked quite simple, straightforward, well, you know, not so much put-downs, more like, can't take credit for this. I wish I could, but a colleague of mine saw that in the brief biog, one of the contestants was from Dudley. And he said, you know, who who's putting the dud into Dudley, which is always sort of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but my highlight, actually, from the week's link was less question writing and less the put-downs. We did a sportsman special, and I've always loved sports and been a football fan, a Liverpool fan. And we had a sports special and John Barnes was one of the people on it. And Anne started on a line of questioning with him and asked him about the famous rap from World in Motion. Yeah, And of course, he came back to her saying, what rap is that, Anne? And so very quickly, I had to run across and get into the microphone and into her ear, start singing John Barnes' rap to her. She then... <laughs> I him and he was very impressed
1: these are our puppets aren't they really i mean they're our avatars <laughs> through through whom we do our greatest work
2: well i'd never claim that Anne robinson was my puppet she very much was the puppet master as well she was she was phenomenal but it was it was also it was an incredible training ground for quizzing for quiz writer question writing they'd already had a bank of x thousand questions so you know you had to find new areas she had an issue with certain words, shall we say. So, you never heard a question on the week's Link that involved the word archipelago. <laughs> and if a tennis question at the time, the answer was pretty much always going to be Tim Henman because she could say that, whereas Greg Rosetsky was a tougher one. <laughs> there were lists of these and they'd grow every series.
0: And you, you also worked on Big Fat Quiz of the Year and Mock the Week, which I, I guess had sort of a similar bear pit or cauldron atmosphere
2: no weirdly not a big flat quiz I did again I think I applied to an ad I think it was in the back of the Guardian I can't remember I it was definitely a sort of a speculative thing and then when I went for the interview I hadn't done any research or anything but I was being interviewed by, by a very nice woman Jane and during the course of the interview she said what sort of comedy do you like and I told her the things I liked and the programs I liked and I mentioned Jonathan Ross and her eyes sort of Widened, and then of course it slightly dawned on me that I must have recognized. Anyway, it was Jonathan Ross's wife, Jane Goldman. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that helped or not, but um, but she hired me as a researcher on the first Big Fat Quiz of the year, which was a show they were doing for Channel Four, and it was a tiny team, and it was you know 482 iterations of Big Fat Quiz ago, and we were able to sort of all have an impact in in the development thereof. I remember being asked about you know title music and mm. title sequences. I was with one of the APs on the very first Mitchell Brook primary school recreation of a story from the news, which has become a sort of signature item on it. The first record was about four and a half hours. Cool. They've not really come down since. Again, it was a great introduction into dark arts of comedy panel shows and uh, you get the best comedy out of people that might not otherwise provide it.
1: Oh, do share. Do share. What tell me tell, tell us you can't say that on this program and then not tell us some of the dark arts.
2: Oh goodness. <laughs> so basically Jimmy Carr is genuinely one of my heroes in comedy. He is one of the hardest working, most authentic comedians. I know he has used writers and so on, but he is, you know, the man is a is a nonstop encyclopedia. Yeah, some of his material was brought in because it was from the year, he was obviously constantly writing stuff all the time and he had reams of jokes about things. So it was a case of sort of digging into the archives and finding stories that, that fit with his material often. We would be booking people who'd been big in the news that year for a sort of mystery guest walk-on type round. I don't know if you remember, there was a brilliant one, a gentleman called Guy Gomar who made the news because he was, as at the time they reported it incorrectly, they said that he was a taxi driver. That's right. Who happened to be in the reception at the BBC when they were trying to bring somebody else an expert in to talk about apple's takeover of something and he ended up live on news 24 being interviewed and he was unprepared and unexpert in the area and he became a big news story. it turned out he was actually there for a job interview for something else in the it world anyway he was he was brilliant but we brought him on as a walk-on guest and panel had to guess who he was and of course they eventually got it but what i remember was he was this lovely lovely guy and he came and he hadn't done much TV other than his inadvertent appearance. <laughs> so I took him to his dressing room and told him what was happening and briefed him and then at the end I went to say thank you and, and help him on his way and I noticed that absolutely everything that wasn't nailed down in the dressing room had made its way into his bag. <laughs> Potpourri pots, gowl gel, I could give I
1: mean it was, you know. Fantastic, well good for him, make the most of it. Uh, obviously you've got a
0: lot to go at if it's a famous footballer but if you've got somebody who maybe like won bronze eight years ago in the haptathlon, you know, you're going to be thinking, like, how on earth are we going to get fun out of this person? Yeah,
2: it's a, diff- it's a difficult one. I still work in a lot of sport-based comedy entertainment, so I'm not going to say anything <laughs> negative. But what I would say on a league of their own, something that became quite apparent, is the people that are brilliant at sports often have become brilliant at sport at the expense of living a life that would otherwise make entertaining anecdotes and stories you know if you spend x hours a day not drinking not partying not you know going raving whatever and just running around a track or bench pressing my weight or whatever it may be you often don't have as much to sort of naturally offer up on the comedy entertainment scene so league of their own was brilliant we obviously would work very hard at trying to find the funny angles and create situations where it brought the best out. What's amazing is that, you know, even the people that are the most dedicated sport, they've all, they're have all they all competitive and mm. can find the levers and throw something out there. I remember the first episode of League of Their Own I ever did had one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, which was brilliant, Freddie Flintoff, who is the exception to that rule about sport, not having stuff to say. The man's amazing. We had Jessica Ennis, now Jessica Ennis-Hill, on the show. She'd just come from the 2012 Olympics, so she was the golden girl. And so we decided to do a thing that brought out the best of each of them. We decided to combine their two favorite sports. So for her, within the heptathlon, her favorite discipline was the javelin. And Freddie Flintoff, of course, his favorite sport is darts. And so we decided to do javelin darts. So we created <laughs> this big dartboard and gave them some javelins and checked out the sort of health and safety requirements of launching these missiles across the studio. And Jess Ennis went first and she got up and she did brilliant javelin technique and launched her javelin into the dartboard and scored 17. Second dart got a four. Third dart got a double 12. So she had, you know, a respectable number or whatever it was i think it totaled like you know 37 or something freddie who at the time was still enjoying life on and off camera stumbled over picked up his first javelin no technique launched it to the dartboard and hit a treble 20. (laughs) and the entire studio erupted the gallery erupted we all thought this was the most amazing i still think it's the most amazing thing i've ever seen (laughs) <laughs> then we had a little worry behind, are people going to think we faked this and it's edited? And then we just thought, you know what, go with it. It's Freddy. The coolest thing is, while 500 people cheered and celebrated at Elstree, Freddy just sort of put his arms up. I do this all the time. Walked back to his death. That's what we do on the <laughs> We did on on our own. <laughs> right, right.
0: I mean, yeah, I think I could slightly write introductions to things and I can do questions and, and rounds. Of them, but like those sort of like fluffy bits of business that link, let's say, some a couple of clips that you want to show, I wouldn't even know where to start with, with that. What, how do you sort of generate ideas for those sort of like bits of VT? It's
2: a good question. I mean, uh, well, VT, especially when it comes to sports, always raises the sort of thorny topic of, of rights and hmm. and cost. And cost. Yeah, cost at the bottom of it all. But you start from there. Can we use it, first of all? Another League of Their Own thing, the program was sort of founded on the basis that Sky had the rights to football, Premier League football, and they weren't maximizing it. You know, they showed the live games, but was there a way of doing something with it in entertainment? So CDL Productions made League of Their Own, pitched for it, got it. And so we'd always use the archive from Premier League where possible as a starting point. I remember very clearly being in a production office where someone said, oh, did you see the game last night? There was a funny moment where ex-Aston Villa striker was through on goal, the defender was chasing after him, tripped over, tried to foul him, but without really fouling him, and ended up pulling down his shorts, just above the knees, but it was enough to make him fall over and miss. And of course, we'd all seen it, we were all sports obsessive, and that led to that evening about six or seven educated people <laughs> in a hired production facility having a game of trousers down football <laughs> and i'm not proud of it and i've never told my wife or my kids <laughs> it involves, but there were literally six or eight people having a kick around with their trousers around their ankles to see if it worked see if it's funny the office we were temporarily in a in a hired space and there was a chap in a neighboring office who was so furious at the noise he came rushing out <laughs> <laughs> but two months later there it is on a league of their own jack whitehall and freddie Flintoff off and jamie redknapp piece of cord tied around their ankles can they kick her you know so i justify it like that yeah
0: yeah <laughs> so let's go to another show which of course you issues of a different kind
2: which was comedians giving lectures do just tell do
1: tell us the premise
2: So the premise, it's Sarah Pascoe, who's an absolutely brilliant comedian, hosting three guest comics each episode, and they are each given a lecture title, usually from either an academic field or or a TED Talk, but a genuine, bona fide lecture that has been given somewhere. It can be historical, it can be contemporary, and they have to deliver that lecture with no more guidance than that. It is just the title. Now, of course you know, it's TV, they're not expected to go out and freestyle it, so they get given the title. They give—they actually, I mean, the scenes, little Intel, they get given a choice of a a few that we as the production team would sort of select as areas we think they might have fun with. And then to be honest, to as little or as much degree as, as the comedians want, the production team is then there to help give supporting material, whether it's, photos which we again had a brilliant in-house photoshop expert so that can enhance the comedy of just the standard lecture because ultimately if it was just the lecture it could be done as a podcast but it's a tv show so there was there was a bit of sort of not pressure but a suggestion that what we can do to sort of produce it up which is a hmm. horrible phrase but um, so we would you know help with props or perhaps a, you know a secondary character or a flip chart or whatever it may be And in each episode, there'd usually be a sort of more established comedian, then a sort of up-and-coming good comedian, and then the third slot was often someone who, you know, was, was doing an Edinburgh festival or had made a few TV appearances but was not at the level of a Frankie Boyle or a Joe Brand. And I just thought that the whole concept was brilliant because it was great for promoting new talent, it offered a variety of voices, faces of comedy styles, we had some brilliant comedians doing some brilliant stuff. And we shot two series back to back. The pandemic came up. In fact, I was patient zero in the 12 yard production office in March 2020. And I had this gentle cough that (laughs) coincided with the news story sweeping in. And we all thought, no, of course, it's not going to hit these shores. And then eventually the finger of blame pointed at me and I was sent home. And a week or two later, the the production office was shut down entirely. And then a week or so later, production was shut down entirely. So yeah, it was horrific for a lot of people, obviously. Mm. We were very lucky that it came back, I think a year later when it fit with Sarah's schedule, Sarah Pascoe, and that was the other thing. She obviously would do material in and around the three lecturers. And so it it was a really packed, comedic, comedy heavy show, which I thought did very well for the channel. And I think they liked it, but ultimately it's it's on hold, which is a sadness because it's a great show.
0: So for our first topic today, we're going to be looking at pacing, the ways in which you can speed up or slow down a format for dramatic effect. And the reason why this has been prompted, Justin, is because Race Across the World has returned to the BBC. I, I think it's a, it's a decent show. However... There is another show which is on Nebula, which, are, which is a streaming service, it's quite a niche streaming service, which is sort of co owned by the people that make the content. And I've mentioned a show before called Jetlag that's on Nebula before. And that is a very similar idea in, in that they each seri- series they sort of effectively play a, what you might call it, board game simulation but they use the planet as the board game so in series one they played connect four in series three they played the game of tag currently they're using the roads of new zealand as a a sort of a maze of roads has sort of various tasks that block their way Hmm. and so the game sort of changes each each series but in terms of pacing What I found was interesting was that in order to start the race on the BBC One show, it took 11 minutes. Mm. And on jet lag, they took 11 seconds. (laughs) No, The jet lag started with two teams going, we're about to go on a, Fantastic race across all the way down to the South Island. Let's go. And that's it. That's all they did. And they just started running. And then they just explained the rules on the run and drip fed you the information along the way. Mm. And I think what I find slight, I mean, you know, I'm, I should be really enthusiastic about race across the world, but I do find it a bit heavy-handed in a number of senses. I mean, one is that as an experiment... I actually skipped two eleven minutes through the show, um, without watching the introductions. Mm. I don't think I missed anything. I could tell you exactly who the couples were, what their stories were, mm. what sort of relationships they had, and I, because they you were often reminded or they built upon the points the introduction introduced you to anyway and then and they remind you about the route and all that sort of yeah,
1: stuff yeah no it's interesting I'm I mean I suppose race across the world is as much a relationship show as a game show so I mean there's an awful lot of people you know trying to get buses failing to get buses uh, and so on and so to a certain extent the introduction is setting up the people as much as the game but I think it's true that it also it also has to do with this this very long slot without commercials that they have on the bbc you know when you've got to fill 57 minutes or whatever it's a long haul and so i think that again these things tend to stay in the show and they don't do lots of recaps and things like that as well so it is very it is played very very straight it's also something that I've noticed very much where you get formats on YouTube, um, things like BuzzFeed, for example. There's a show I've watched called Worth It, which is three guys who who evaluate three of the same thing at different price points. So it might be a $5 hamburger, $50 hamburger and a $200 hamburger. And they go and try them all and they, they decide whether the more expensive, expensive ones are worth it. Um, And I remember talking to the head of BuzzFeed about this because I was at dinner with him and he was saying, what's a format? And I was going, but you've got formats on BuzzFeed. Yeah, that's a format. But because it starts in the car, to your point, you know, when that starts, they're in the taxi on the way, to the first restaurant, and they're there in a minute. And if that was on Channel 4 or whatever, there would be, so, welcome to Worth It. Now, in this show, da 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 da, da you know, mm. and, and, and our first restaurant is, and it is actually a big relief not to have those things. And I think it is seeping into TV. I think you do see it. I mean, I get frustrated like you do with game shows. I mean, I, I have a rule in developing game shows that the game has got to start within five minutes of the top of the show. And I see so many shows where it doesn't. And you think, oh, my God. I remember judging uh, competition, and I remember watching – we all sat there and watched a French uh, quiz show, and we were 17 minutes in before anything (laughs) happened. We'd even had a commercial break. You know, (laughs) just literally, when is this actually going to start? It's extraordinary that it takes this long, and it's so boring. I've only seen that once ever happen on British
0: TV, and that was when there was a particular episode of Strike It Lucky with Michael Barrymore, Mm. and they just found because he did quite a long extended chat with the contestants at the start and the game wasn't particularly good. Uh, Often the game wouldn't start till about eight, nine minutes in. However, on this particular show, because the contestants were so funny that they did actually go to a break and then started the game after the break.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, well, I guess that show is as much about Barrymore, you know, clowning around than anything else what I do find interesting is that you know again when you're developing a game and you know this as well as I do probably better that you know the ideal rules of a game are such that they unfold that the viewer can start with a very straight short premise and then it plays out comes apparent as you go along so you don't have to explain all the beginning and a good example of that might be Millionaire which is his one person, twelve questions, you know, four choices, off we go. But when it launched live on ITV way back in the day, it began with Chris Tarrant standing there explaining how the game worked. And it goes on and on and on. And now it seems extraordinary that somebody has to has to spend that amount of time helping the audience to understand how this game works even before the show started.
0: Yes, I mean the difference is as you you talk about emotions. There, the the def- difference between race across the board and jet lag is that jet lag doesn't really have any emotions oh. if it's a, at all. It it is two groups of youngish people who are just doing this for a blast, and there's no kind of development in their characters because they're friends who know each other anyway. Oh. However, I do think it's interesting that like. Uh, there's just probably just as much incident and interplay with just two teams than there is with having to track what five different teams are up to in race across the world and I I do find that it's kind of a little bit I mean it's quite clever how they've managed to have choke points in the routes Mm. when people meet up and they can interact but I still sort of slightly find it hard to track who's who's gone where and and why
1: yeah I mean that's true generally speaking I mean storytelling has speeded up in in most genres and on most channels race across the world notwithstanding but what it's been replaced by the time is usually replaced with character development Um, so people want less explanation about what's going on but more investment in the people who are doing it And you see that in things like um, this time next year, for example, on, on ITV is a really good example of speeding up a makeover show by having somebody go through a door saying, you know, I wish I could lose 10 stone and coming back through a door um, a second later, you know, whether, see whether they did it or not. And, you know, in days gone by, that would, that would have taken, you know, 45 minutes to get there. Um, now okay they do a bit of flashback to see what what went right or what went wrong over the year in between those two moments and another example of it is the perfect home show make your home perfect make your home perfect thank you so in that you've got two architects who are competing to make over somebody's house and they create a virtual version of it and the The house owners walk through the virtual virtual version, which builds around them with their VR helmets on. They choose one and the architect does it for real. The point being that, again, normally in a makeover show, the makeover reveal is only at the end. And the cleverness of that format isn't just the tech. It's actually bringing the makeover moment forwards to only a few minutes into an episode. So mm-hmm. that kind of speeding up of storytelling is is something that uh, we we see all over the place,
0: and it's maybe not much to do with pacing, but certainly with to do with tone. Is that I do find Race Across the World rather heavy-handed <laughs> in terms of its tone. I mean, like the start of the race, they go okay, like teams have to get out of a country park. It's it's like this is a safe place that thousands of visitors visit every year. So they have to sort of amble out of the park and and just find the the place Hmm. to get out to the nearest city. And already the soundtrack is going. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: must must agree with that. I mean, I, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of time working in Canada and I find it having watched the previous series, which was right, you know, going from the top of Latin America to the bottom and starting off in a park in Canada. I, I mean, Definitely there are some very exciting and very challenging places to go to in Canada in future future episodes. But a park in Vancouver, as you say, particularly as, you know, some of them couldn't find their way out, uh, which <laughs> didn't bode well for the rest of it. But it was a was a <laughs> bit of a lame start and and as you say, to kind of ramp up the drama at this point was so it was a bit of a mis misfire. I think they should have started, you know god knows there are enough places on either coastline of canada that are are challenging and tough and wilderness and all the rest of it they they didn't have to start there so i I get that
0: whereas i think what's good about jet lag is knows when it's being slightly lame and it plays up to it so for example that if there's like a slightly boring moment they they have this thing where they they review the snacks that they're eating and so they've they've sort of developed this running gag of like let's enter the snack zone and like this sort of 1980s graphic goes (laughs) comes in and says it's time to enter the snack zone And and you just they just have this just a bit of fun with it, and it's just sort of that kind of levity and light handedness, and just rolling with the material that you've got and making yeah. the best of it. That I, just, I think it's it's funny how you've you've got two two productions that have wildly wildly different production budgets and wildly different numbers of staff working on them, and yet they are both essentially teams, or pairs of people running around the world doing tasks in order to achieve a, oh, a goal of, cool. of getting to the end of a race. And uh, so it just shows that how the number of ways in, in which in terms of the ways of directing, producing, shooting, editing, writing, and setting up the challenges can be completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And now it's time to go back to our highly entertaining interview with Luke Shack, including how his role has now evolved
1: into live events. I just wanted to drill down a little bit into kind of the interface between comedy and format really because very often you're bringing comedians who are stand up you know they've got a set they they write their material in a particular way and then they're brought into a structure which is designed to do something other something different and obviously you get shows where the format sits, certainly some panel shows where the format sits very lightly with a comedy. And if somebody just wants to go off on one, that's fine. I always remember Peter Cook being shut down in Room 101. He'd just started on the Germans. And <laughs> um, <laughs> and the host said, and so what's your next subject? <laughs> no, no, don't do that. Just just go with it. Don't you can have one object in Room one as long as it's the Germans. It's fine. What's the art to that? And, and how do you work with comedians to get them to deliver and to feel comfortable within the structure of
2: a format? That's a great question. It's a big old question. I guess yeah. there's sort of different areas. If the, if the comedian is the host, is a very different beast to when they're hired for the night to be a panelist, as you know a guest. Again, comedy panel shows, they're great because there's a safety net of an edit. So starting with, say, panelists, I love comedians like Rob Beckett because he is someone you put him into the structure of a panel show, a quiz or a comedy quiz, whatever it may be, and he will usually ask what's going to come up, what are the topics I should think about. Some comedians go away and they research those areas, they write them up, they delve back into their archives and think, what have I got on the heptathlon or the you know the long jump? And then during the record, someone like a Rob or a Romesh Ranganathan will just fire stuff out. And I think they're hilarious and brilliant and often it'll be brilliant. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the room doesn't receive a gag or it's Somebody talks over it, or it's been said before on a previous episode, but they wouldn't know that because they're only a visiting panelist. The great ones, like Jack Whitehall, they will just keep working. They'll keep going, and they know and trust that the edit will preserve them, and they almost forget that they're recording a show in front of 200 people because they're thinking ahead to the final show. You get some, often who are sort of earlier on their, their comedian's journey, TV, who are brilliant in a room. They can dominate an arena or a theatre or Edinburgh show and they come on TV and their first gag goes out and it's not met brilliantly for whatever reason and they can sink and recede. And and I've been involved in a lot of shows where comedians' best material is only an hour or so into the record when they finally sort of warmed up and then, you know, you switch things around in the edit so that people don't notice that. Right, right, right. Have I got news for you? There are some Brilliant comedians who've hosted it and hosted it brilliantly. I think of Jack D, Frank Skinner, Joe Brand. But quite often we found that comedian was a little bit hamstrung in the host's chair. And it was always our preference that they'd sit in the in the seat next to Ian or Paul where they can just fire in funny. Right. The host's job, which again has been done so brilliantly by Angus Deaton, by Alexander Armstrong, David Mitchell, who's sort of, he's not a comedian. He's genuinely just a funny person and an actor. They're the ones that can do the mechanics really well. Jeremy Clarkson, who's not a comedian. So often our our worst nightmare was someone who was brilliant as a guest, and then their agent would ask, next year, could they host? Right. Because you think, oh, we're losing a brilliant... Ross Noble, for example, is just... You know, you just want him there on the side. You don't want him on autocue, no. No, and... and those are also scripted gags, whereas Ross Noble doesn't do scripted gags, to my knowledge. Um, so it's a very different skill. And for the edit, you need those scripted gags because they they end a sequence, and you get a laugh, and then you move on to the next round. So they're great for gear changes. Oh. But once they got glory and the money of the host's chair, they very rarely would go back.
0: <laughs> being an executive producer of a showrunner like when you've got the conflicting egos of let's say the host wanting one thing so that they look good the people that have devised the show want it to work another way you might have another opinion about what you think might be funny. The commissioners want one thing because they think that's what the audience want. The online expectations and the press might think of another thing. Sponsors, How on a, yeah, like all the people with the money, of course, <laughs> have, got an, have got an opinion. I mean, uh, advertisers potentially. How on earth do you do you corral all of those things and 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 go? Yes, right. Hear what all of you are saying. This is what we're going to do.
2: When people say, "What does a producer do? What does a series producer do? What does an executive producer do?" Again, the, the lines blur slightly in in the different ranks when i was a series producer i remember my kids who were three and five at the time or five and seven they knew i worked in tv and they said are you a producer and i said oh well i'm i'm a serious producer and i remember one of them going you're a serious producer so not funny yeah <laughs> the series producer or the executive producer showrunner essentially you're a consensus builder to some degree I think it helps if you always have an opinion, and I do always have an opinion, but it doesn't always help if you fight for your opinion in all circumstances. You have to remember, the channel is usually the ultimate boss. Often the talent might feel that they are the ultimate boss, and often the channel is respectful of the talent and wants to keep them happy, so they will defer a little. It really depends. So I I have an opinion, but I don't have an ego, so I will always defer to who i think is ultimately going to win the battle and try and shortcut getting there in the best way possible with the fewest the fewest casualties along the way the production team i will always try and fight for because they're the ones that are putting in the hours you know I'll, I'll I'll always try and go to bat for them and stand up in the face of a commissioner saying it's got to be x or it's got to be y but ultimately you know they're paying for the show we all want the same thing. That's the thing you've always got to sort of come back to. Everybody wants best show. Some people want it for the least money. Some people want to make the most money out of it. Those are slightly different things. But um, I, for me, I always just sort of try and put the comedy at the forefront. What's you know? And I, I look back at my CV and I've made lots of shows that people could easily go, oh, "That wasn't very funny." Sure, it's not. There's a lot of factors. There's a lot of collaborators. That's why I never take. All the credit when something goes well because i'm certainly not going to take the blame when it hasn't (laughs) i've had hosts who i don't think are great or collaborative or funny and that's unfortunate but you might do it for a different reason it might be that it's just a great slot it's working with a great team or it's working on a channel that you haven't done before so you'll take those hits but equally you work with people who are brilliant and lovely and funny and the show might have a flaw in the format I had a boss um, who asked me to
1: executive produce my first show, and I said to him, well, what does an executive producer do? And he said, well, your main job is to keep the broadcaster away from the set. <laughs> wow. There's quite a lot of truth in that as
2: well. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends. I've had really good experiences with commissioners, and and I've had really bad ones. I did a quiz for a channel that hadn't done much in that area, and they wanted to be involved in every single question mm. for every episode for a series of 20 plus shows, which, you know, hundred odd questions per show was a lot of questions. And we go back to, you know, the, the wastage and they had a very clear belief about what their audience was and what they wanted. And whilst I completely respected that, we didn't have the facility to fill the stocks with every question being about Things that they thought their audience wanted to hear about. And I slightly thought, you know, if you broaden it, you might broaden your audience. <laughs> um, it was a very sort of male-skewing channel and show. So they rejected questions, you know, quiz questions, that perfectly good pub quiz questions about Madonna as being too female. Wow. You know, how much do you go to battle? The questions team were beleaguered and, and working all hours to try and deliver questions that were more male but there's only so many questions about tractors and the rolling stones you can do
1: i think Madonna, madonna's core fan base is male
2: i mean i think i, I think i used those very words <laughs> as well Justin. I mean, but you know they were the clients they were the ones and that was their role they wanted to do that and Mm.
0: Now, just finally, obviously, we've been talking about your TV career and that also you mentioned earlier that you're a Liverpool supporter and you've been able to put those two threads together most recently in an interesting way.
2: I spent a lot of time not wanting to do anything in sports because it was my passion and my hobby and I didn't want to cross the two worlds. But eventually, League of Their Own was an opportunity and that sort of opened the door. And since then, I've jumped right through it and done Play to the Whistle for ITV, you know, a broad sports comedy entertainment show. Back of the Net, which was for Amazon, where they wanted a show to go alongside their Premier League rights, which was Peter Crouch, Gabby Logan, and John Bishop. So I got to spend a lot of time with Peter Crouch, traveling the country for a segment on that called The Goat, where he interviewed the goats, the greatest of all time in the Premier League. So we went Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, everywhere, meeting some of my absolute heroes, people I've sworn at, you know, on the TV screen. And that was fantastic. And, and, you know, Crouch is a true, true gent and a a lovely man and very, very funny. And that was a proper career high, getting to, you know, get on a train to Liverpool and meet Steven Gerrard with him and Shearer and all sorts. And then most recently, so I guess off the back of those and various other shows, I got a call from a current employer, Buzz16, which is a company set up by Gary Neville. And they got a commission for an entertainment format, which is based on his... He, he does a podcast for, for a YouTube channel. So it's Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, and Roy Key. And people love hearing what these guys have to say about football and, and more. And so this is sort of a supersized version of that, where the podcast is now going on tour. And we have sold out enormous arenas in Liverpool and Dublin most recently. We've got one at Wembley Arena next week, and then Manchester in June. And while they're doing these four live shows, we have the three of them, Roy Keane, Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, for two days in each city to film bespoke VTs. And then the show, which is going on Sky in the summer, will be a hybrid of the best bits of the live arena uh, chat and elements with the best bits of the VTs that we're filming in these places. I hope a brilliant format, I think for Sports fans, it's going to be a must. But obviously, the aim is to try and broaden it, and make it more sort of entertainment skewing. So we've got various other celebrities and sports people joining them in the various cities. We get to go and do a bit of tourism in each place. We got them to visit Blarney Castle and kiss the Blarney Stone in <laughs> Cork. We went to Roy's childhood home, to his childhood clubs. In Liverpool, we went to the Cavern Club. We, went, we had a concert in the Cavern Club. Um, and what else did we do? We got them doing some stunts. Off, oh, if I meant to tell you this, but maybe uh, they abseiled Jamie, Jamie Carragher, and Roy. And sorry, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville abseiling down the side of the new stand at Anfield. Wow, great <laughs> fun, real entertainment high points with Gary going past the Liverpool badge, saying all sorts of things that you shouldn't say. It's a massive show. Live show itself is enormous. You know. Eight or nine thousand people paying serious money to see these guys talk, mm. so there's an expectation there, and and that's quite sort of tense. That's a new string to the bow for me, anyway. Being in the gallery, being in the ear for our for our hosts Kelly Gates, Josh Denzel, and then you know trying to make a live show run seamlessly, mm. whilst also in the back of my mind thinking, is this going to work? Yeah, can we intercut this? What do we need? You can't do pickups in front of nine thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> And there's live music as well. We've got you know, Dexy's, formerly Dexy's Midnight Runners, coming <laughs> on Tuesday, on Wednesday to Wembley Arena, mm-hmm. and so on. So it's it's a big old thing.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's fantastic. It's always a great pleasure spending time with you. Thank you, likewise. <laughs> and uh, so you'll be back for your show until later. But for now, Luke, thanks very much indeed.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Now, recently, Channel 4 in the UK have had a new reality show called Rise and Fall, all to do with the haves and have-nots of that particular programme. Well, in terms of ratings, it's been a case of more fall than Rise, unfortunately. The ratings have lounged around 400,000 for most of the time, which is very, very smaller, I think, uh, compared to the ratings that they were probably hoping mm-hmm. for, whereas for things like The Traitors was getting like 2 to two to 3 million towards the end of its run. So uh, I thought we would just have a chat about if you have a show where you are still shooting while episodes are going out mm. in, in a reality sort of space, what are the things you can do to rescue the show during the run? Whoa. And, well, it's an in- I think this is an interesting one. First thing is you, you desperately, desperately try not to have a format that, that fails like this because it's very hard to sort of re- reverse... The trend. But. yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. You know, there are so many of these shows. Are, are, are you know, even when they're sort of supposedly live, you know, they've started recording them several months in advance. So you know, what you're getting is part. You know, the first few episodes are only slightly live. Is the truth of it. So they do have time to get editorial control over things. So that's one thing. Um, in the classic save is to change the slot, uh, which happens probably more in the states than it does in the uk i mean it is desperation because it's often the kiss of death you know when something's (laughs) moved out of prime time into kind of a graveyard slot you you know it's in trouble but occasionally it works occasionally you know they they look at the the stats and they realize that the audience they're looking for is not in this place and they put it somewhere else
0: Annika Rice said that uh, when Challenge Annika was removed from its Saturday night slot on Channel 5, she said that they were on a floating schedule, <laughs> which I, th- I thought was an well, interesting phrase. Yes,
1: yeah, well, that's uh, that's the thing, yeah. Talking of phrases, I remember being at a talk by the Norwegian producer of Survivor, And he was talking about a particular episode where, for one reason or another, mostly to do with the casting, uh, the the series was just not taking off. And they were panicking because it had been a real banker for them for some time. So he said, uh, and so what we did was we brought on the sharks. (laughs) I said, sorry, you did what? And he said, well, we had to introduce some sharks. So they had various games that place in the water on platforms and so on. And so they introduced some very tame. Sharks into the water uh, to to boost the ratings, and ever ever since then, in my brain, this problem <laughs> has been how to bring on the sharks. Suppose that like, if you don't
0: have any sharks handy, then you can have human sharks by bringing on more controversial or edgier contestants to shake things up.
1: Yes, I mean there's a kind of unexpected guest solution, isn't there? Really, uh, the one that springs to mind is the ever <laughs> the continuing return of Louis Walsh who constantly got fired from The X Factor and constantly returned. But the most the most famous, famous one, which, you know, one has to question exactly what was going on here, was, I think it was season four of The X Factor, 2007, and Louis had been fired. They'd had a big row, and he and Simon had fallen out, and they had Brian Friedman in his seat. And after, the, I think, the first audition round, simon was missing from the desk and was like where's simon simon has gone to find louis to see if he can persuade him on camera to come back uh, and he surprises louis and louis says <laughs> oh go on then and Louis's back on the show <laughs> so that was a quite a unique way to um to try and save the show which was which was struggling after a few episodes.
0: But like PR stunts and using the newspapers to mm-hmm. help you and leaking stories of things that you know have happened but have not hit the airwaves yet yeah. is an is is one way in which things like Big Brother have built up audiences in the past. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, but the question is is whether they were whether they were anticipating the fact that they were going to be in trouble or whether they were just going to do this anyway. Another thing that sometimes gets used is the, is the double elimination where you, where you, you, know, you you, basically have to raise the stakes to try and get people to tune in and get interested. Of course, what often happens with the double elimination is that you lose, you lose an episode <laughs> mm. <laughs> effectively. If, if you're going to stick to your maths.
0: Well, or you lose the
1: entertaining, but not very good contestant. It's true. Yes. That is absolutely true. So sometimes that can, that can benefit you. I think my my best example of this is how to rescue a failing reality show is to pray, okay? So Donald Trump, while he was still president, attended the annual national prayer breakfast. And normally, I think presidents are supposed to pray for world peace. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Okay. I I can see Um. what's coming here, yes. but trump decided to pray for the apprentice um and it's and particularly pray for arnold schwarzenegger who he claimed was absolutely sinking his show and so he he led a prayer for that as only he could do so if in doubt pray dear god can i have some
0: ratings please (laughs) well i mean (laughs) it's one way of doing it i mean interesting about rise and fall is oh. i mean i haven't been watching it myself but it's um I, i've been interested in the exasperation of the people who have been watching it boggled by how slow the twists have been brought out in terms yeah. of the whole show is about the people living in luxury, or yeah. work hard downstairs it's like an upstairs downstairs thing and the the rate at which people have been going up or going down or the way in which the game has developed has been glacially slow mm. and things that people thought would be established in show one or show one and two haven't happened until maybe the second week mm. um, so i would say one way you could rescue it is to, to sort of speed it up and get on with it a lot mm. more
1: um, that's an interesting thought no i mean i you know it's part of me uh, you know my, my with my kind of producer hat on i just feel feel desperately sorry for any production that's in that position because it's so hard and i mean if you've shot the show there is almost nothing you can do about it but if you haven't you know if you're in the middle of the show it's it's so hard to try and address a problem that you haven't really got a handle on you know you can't always tell why people aren't watching you can can work you can work it out afterwards generally speaking but it's quite hard in the in the thick of it to understand what the problem is and to try and do something about it. And, and as you know, once a show gets a bit of a stink around it, then it's it's so hard to come back.
0: But then one thing you can do is perhaps just retire, lick your wounds and have another go at it some other time. I mean, look at Celebrity Love Island, mm. which was sort of seen as a bit of a weak flop and then went away for a few years, brought back as Love Island proper and it's been a massive success
1: ever since. About mm. timing, I mean... That this show you know is being compared to traitors at every level and one wonders what the reaction to it would be if traitors hadn't happened I always remember that with uh, Downton Abbey when Downton Abbey came out Upstairs Downstairs was being rebooted on the BBC and they brought Downton Abbey forwards in (laughs) the schedule (laughs) to get to get on air before Upstairs Downstairs Um, and everybody loved Downton and then upstairs downstairs came on and felt like the the copy Um, and also the characters were not as lovable and again it was a slow burn in the first episode you know nobody had arrived at the house none of the staff had been taken on and so on and so on and they were going to have a very very slow build up and um Killed it.
0: I also think it's a bit strange that before i have got Tempting Fortune with Paddy McGuinness, which is this, this game where they're on a trek, but every so often they come across various things like a, a hotel or a diner or mm. s- some sort of luxury that they have to pay vast amounts of money from the prize pot for to experience. And it's a matter of like, will you do without the luxury or will you splurge? And um, in some ways, it's not it's not the same format but nevertheless um to have two shows that kind of revolve around luxuries mm some way experiencing luxury or or um experiencing harsh
1: conditions yeah well again you never know with these things one thing might have been sat on the shelf for ages and one thing's just been made and uh you know they might think that one's going to you know um boost the interest in the other so on. again scheduling is a complicated art but i think um i think i think the general point is that for the most part you can't you can't rescue a failing show you if you can i know i know no 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 there is there is a point to this but uh, you know if you can limp onto the end of a series you can sometimes rescue it in series two if they give you a season two and you have a chance to uh, to revisit it then it is possible
0: and we're back here with Luke Shack, and I'm wondering, Luke, if your show and tell is going to be anything
2: football related. No. So I've got I've broken the format, I'm afraid. I've got three <laughs> items. Since okay. we have a format doctor and and a format neurosurgeon, I think we can probably piece things back together if that's okay. We'll try. Do you hate me for bringing three things?
0: No, we'll have just just have to call it
2: show and show and show and tell. That's all. I'll be very brief. The first one is a clear plastic-barreled Black Bic Biro. I always have one. It's always in my front left pocket. It's a legacy thing because I've got a terrible memory. I like to write things down when I think of them. Modern mobile phones have made it slightly obsolete, so I do always have my phone with me and that's slightly sort of usurped the need, but for some reason I can't not have a clear plastic-barreled Black Bic Biro in my pocket, and on my rider when we're in the studio.
1: Okay, so if we need to borrow a pen, we always know that you're the, you're the go-to person.
2: Well, you say that, I'm really <laughs> in about letting people borrow them because they disappear, and then I'm landed with a horrible pen that I don't Anyway, yes, I always have a pen, other than on holiday, where I allow myself a breather <laughs> if I'm wearing shorts or playing sport. But otherwise, yes, I'm armed. The second object is my scooter, I, a moped scooter. I use it for travel. I'm a freelancer, so I'm always in a different company, different place, different studio, and it's it allows me thinking time, and it's when I do a lot of my best thinking and processing. It doesn't allow me to stop and write things down with my BlackBit biro, which is annoying, so I have to hold on to them, but it, I find that the process of being away from people, away from noise, away from music, away from everything, is when I do my best thinking. And then my third object is is my dog, not because I love him, I do, but he's a burden, but it's because he's called Dex, which everyone thinks is short for Dexter, and it's not, it's short for dexamethasone, which is a miracle drug. My daughter, when she was very little, was very ill, she had to take dexamethasone, and it had the knock-on effect of knocking out her immune system, which meant we weren't allowed to have a dog or allow her near pets. And we always said, when you're better, we'll get a dog. And it took a long time. And eventually she was better and she's fine. And she's full health and amazing. But we had to follow through on that, which I've regretted ever since. So we got a dog and we called him Dex, short for dexamethasone. But what it reminds me of is that when she was really, really, really ill and, you know, in Great Ormond Street and we were there sort of taking turns, my wife and I, overnights and so on that was sort of depth of reality of life. And you'd roll out of a hospital bed at six AM, have a shower and get to work. And two hours after being in Great On Street, surrounded by dark reality, you were seeing if Jamie Redknapp could have a teaspoonful of cinnamon and whether that was funny. And some um, and it was. <laughs> we nearly killed him, but he did it. And so on. And so I would roll from this really weird, sort of horrible, mm. morbid area into the lightness of comedy entertainment. And surrounded by people who had no idea what was going on at the time in my own life. And of course, I'd never bring it into that. But there was one other writer who had a similar situation going on. And we sort of would find a corner and we'd hold each other and think, you know, God, is this mad that there's real life and real death going on? And we're just making light entertainment where, you know, will Freddie Flintoff shoot wasabi out of his nose when he has a sort of loaded sushi roll for a challenge? And I remember the writer said to me, he said, yeah, but the thing you've got to remember is whilst it might seem frivolous and we're doing this light entertainment nonsense, the doctors and nurses who are keeping our loved ones alive are coming home and they want to put their feet up and they want to be entertained. And it's genuinely that that sticks sits, sits with me that makes me feel okay about what it is that I do every day because it is entertainment. But there is a scintilla of reason and purpose behind it.
0: I think of it being a bit like writing the crossword for a newspaper. You know, no matter what the news is, people always want something regular in their lives to distract them for half an hour.
2: Yes. And also, you've really shown yourself there because you can do a crossword in half an hour, an hour. For me, it sits around for about a week <laughs> or a month.
0: Right. Well, anyway, we've got to go and let you uh, play penis picturery with Ian Sterling again. So, Wow.
2: <laughs> so... <laughs> is that my TV epitaph? <laughs> Can I just say, on that show, Celebability, which is a wonderful show tucked away on ITV2, I'm doing it again this summer, we played a game last series that is as funny as anything I've ever played, which was sex toy or dog toy. I'm going to let people go and Google the hell out of it. Fantastic.
0: Anyway, Luke, we've got we must let you go, but that was a fantastic story very much worth listening to all three objects. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Right, Justin, I'm going to launch something on you now. Okay. As this is the start of a new season, I thought we'd shake things up a bit and not rest on our laurels. So I'm going to try out a new game for the end of the show.
1: Right. Which is going okay. to be called
0: Four Minute Format. Okay. So you probably guess what I'm going to do. I've got six cards in front of me with the numbers one to six. Would you like to pick a number?
1: Uh, six.
0: Number six. Right. Okay. The word on the back of this is flag. 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 Okay. So the challenge we've got to do is basically a hyper turbo development session. We've got four minutes to come up with a one log line description for a format, but we've only got four minutes to develop the format for it. It could be any type of format from game show to documentary or entertainment or whatever. It has to have something to do with the word flag. You up for that? Yep. Okay. All right. So our time starts now. Any initial thoughts? I mean, obviously, there was the thing about the redesigning a new flag for New Zealand, for example, Mm. when when they tried that. Yeah, so they,
1: they actually ended up back at the flag that they started with, didn't they? It was quite funny. Mm. Yeah, that was my immediate thought, was, you know, kind of four advertising agencies. And, you know, every week they've got to design a new flag for a country. And so it's a kind of, they, it's like a travelogue. So we take them to that country and they... Meet some people, have some cuisine, dum dum da dum. Try to get kind of ideas and images and things, and then present a new flag to the prime minister at the end of the episode.
0: But maybe it was not just a country; it could just be like a club or a county or a city or like you know, that's 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 not bad actually. That they, they a particular community of people who think that they're under underrepresented, under-represented in some way. Or yeah, yeah it, could be, do, exactly. do, oh. it could
1: be a movement or, you know, it could be Greenpeace or, you know, LGBTQA plus and all that sort of thing yeah. as well. Mm. Okay, so that's one thought.
0: You've also got these capture the flag kind of games in sort of computer games where, you know, you, you, there's like people have to try and grab the other team's flag and bring it back to the base without getting shot. Um, and I don't yes. think that's been done physically as a game show.
1: I think there was a Capture the Castle. I mean, I think or I've certainly been involved in at least a couple of pilots that was involved in that. Actually. Okay. But, okay, flag. What else does flag mean? Flag means to start to get tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you've got to do these very patriotic games, but they're incredibly physical. Um, so the <laughs> first person to flag loses or gets eliminated every week.
0: Or, I was just thinking about making a really, really big flag. So, the challenge might be to recreate Australia's biggest flag and, and like get as many, like, you know, blue tablecloths and, 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 and whatever and lay them out in the middle of the deserts, try and, well, a massive- I mean,
1: pa- Paris Olympics. I mean, you know, they created this massive, massive flag to, to using the Eiffel Tower as a, as a flagstaff. Um, which was meant to be kind of live and they actually had to sort of do it, uh, pre-recorded because as you can imagine, it was extremely large. Mm. So there has been a giant flag, but yes, I like the idea of the kind of quilting sort of, uh, you know, joining together all these small quilts into one giant one. So that could be fun. It could be like, like a, I'm not sure that I think there might just be an awful lot of knitting. <laughs> for the first, first 43 minutes of the show and then three, two minutes of flying the flag. Flying the flag. So flying the flag is about industry. Maybe there's a kind of, uh, Dragon's Den type show, except the difference is it's about export. So we've got to go out and fly the flag. So it's not just pitching products mm. to dragons. It's pitching products, British products to foreign buyers or foreign countries or whatever. So it's how do you export Britain? Mm-hmm. And that, that could work for any country going to other countries as well. Mm. Um, Who owns these incredibly good ideas, David, <laughs> that we're coming up with? That's what scares well, me is. Yeah I know, well, I know but we've it, got it, evidence it, we've got evidence right here right now that this is where it was born but even well, so there,
0: well there we are well the time's up unfortunately so oh, but we have to God. sort of somehow summarize that in into one line I think uh, I think flying the flag is the best title I think that's a very good title okay. but I I don't know I I feel the one about exporting
1: British products
0: the, the ch- a, 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 some kind of ch- yeah some kind of like a bit more like Apprentice I suppose but some kind of challenge format where yeah it's a group of maybe products that are well known in one country um, and then challenge is for them to go out to other countries and and, and see if the other people will, will buy
1: them okay so we need a, a log line or a strap line for flying the flag, um, well, we, what have we've we got? We've got this is about Brits pitching, pitching products to foreign buyers. Long radio silence.
0: Yeah, well, this, this is what Ed is for. <laughs> 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 um. Seven British businesses are challenged to export their unique local products and services abroad to fly the flag for British exports. Something like that. That's the basic concept. It needs work, but the actual but core of the concept is, is probably hmm. there. You can fit in the dots from there.
1: Anyway, that's not bad for four minutes' work. <laughs> it's like a, sure. good. That was quite fun. The difference is that I feel much more stressed
0: (laughs) at the end of that than than
1: I do. But uh, would
0: would you like to be stressed now doing it or would you like to be stressed beforehand trying to think up of of fake formats?
1: That is very true. And uh, what what listeners don't know is the four and a half hour edit, four and a half hour (laughs) gap, of of, which we edited out (laughs) in the course of that. Okay.
0: well we'll have another go one of the other words another time but Morris. that's it for this time if uh, you'd like to contact the show you can tweet us at tv show podcast or you can email us contact at tv show and tell dot com. but until next time i've been david bodicam
1: and i've been justin Scrooge, and this
0: has been tv show and tell